Hey, welcome to Athlete on Fire. I'm Scott Jones, your host. This one is another one brought to you guys by Spartan Media Fest and ATP Science. These guys are the reason that I'm out here in Squaw. Um, about to run the Spartan Super tomorrow morning. It was beautiful 60 degrees to get today. Uh, it's looking like about 35 and snow tomorrow, so that's going to be quite the experience. Can't wait to get out there on the mountain and run around a little bit. This show is with Eric Burns, and it was... There are a few people that I've really wanted to interview just to get the mindset of what they're doing. And the reason is because I have a similar background, minus the making uh, full career of baseball. But um, Eric played in major leagues for 11 years, finished up a little while ago, and uh, got into endurance sports, triathlons, ultra running. Uh, he's running in the Ultra Beast tomorrow here, and we got to just talk about it all. I, I, made, I forced him to describe his first day. And the bigs and walking out on the on the field in Cleveland, he was at Jacobs Field, and just that description gave me goosebumps. And we talk about grief. We've both lost a dad here in in the not too distant uh, past, and um, we talk about raising kids. We talk about training and getting out of your comfort zone and why that's so important. And it was just a really really fun talk. And after about 20 seconds, I think we both forgot the microphone was there, and we just really connected. So. Hope you guys enjoy the show. He's a passionate guy. He's got a lot of energy. I think you guys have really enjoyed that part of the of the show. And hopefully you learned something. I know I did. And, and uh, I'm going to be definitely a lifelong fan of this guy. He's a really cool dude. Appreciate you. Eric, E-R-I-C, Burns, B-Y-R-N-E-S. Nice. All right, we're good. <clears throat> All right, man. I'm not doing any fancy intros. I'll do that post-production. Nice. So I'm excited to meet you. I, I played baseball my whole life. Basketball, football. Um, my dad was a coach. Loved team sports. That's what I did, you know. And uh, got got into college, played ball then. And when it was over, it was over. You know, like every athlete's career eventually sure. ends, right? And I was dumb enough to just want to go try new things. And I moved to Colorado, training a lot of team sports athletes, but not as much as I did on the East Coast. The East Coast was like NFL combine guys and, and guys trying to make it to the bigs and stuff like that move out to Colorado and everybody's doing endurance sports like every other client that walked through the door was running some kind of big ass race or a triathlon or something else so I had to learn um you know I've been doing VO2 maxes on people and training and doing all the testing that that endurance athletes need but I had not put myself through the fire so to speak so um in Colorado it's kind of right of passage to go in the mountains and, and figure it out so I started doing it um loved it never really great at it but really enjoyed just kind of pushing myself and getting that mental aspect out of it um but to this day i can't think of any players that i played with that got into doing sports <laughs> and like just the baseball i mean i remember talking just just the the idea of doing of running a few miles i don't think i ran more than four miles ever at one time before i was 24 years old so the the fact that there was at least one other person in the world that played baseball and got into endurance sports. Am I, am I making this up or what? No, and you hit the right number too. Four, yeah. four miles. Yeah. Right? It, it, was, it. it was only because that like pretty much was the threshold of us going full send, right? Probably sub-six-minute miles as fast as we can yeah. until we completely blew up. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, a crazy transition for me. Um, you know, I think basically um, – the best way to put it is is that you know when you get done doing something that you love uh, and physically you know I got used to putting it on the line each and every single day and after 12 years of playing professionally that's gone yeah you have to find an outlet yeah and I immediately started playing slow pitch softball um, beer league that's was, painful, isn't it? yeah exactly just pounding um, pounding beers and homers on Wednesday <laughs> nights and uh, hanging out with my buddies and it was great it was cool I was golfing yeah loved golf but definitely didn't have the passion I was surfing almost every day and the connection with the water and it's very spiritual for me yeah competitive uh, not at all right. I don't look at it and think of surfing as a competition and so I had three junior high school friends of mine that I ran into say, hey, we're going down to do the Pat Grove tri- Sprint Triathlon down in Pebble Beach um, in two weeks. Why don't you come with us? And I'm like, man, I, I've always been fascinated by triathlon. Ever since I was a kid, my dad and I used to watch Ironman World Championships. And I remember like one of my first memories in life, along with the catch, yeah. Joe Montana, Dwight Clark in oh, the back yeah. of the end zone, was Julie Moss collapsing 
at the finish line of the Ironman World Championship and crawling. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, what is it that would push somebody to that level? Right. To get somebody to be so exhausted where they would have to crawl along. So I... It just sticks in the back of your head like you can't get the image out, right? And I, and I didn't. In all yeah. those years of, of, of playing football and baseball and basketball and, and yeah, 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 I, it's like I had no background in endurance sports at all. Yeah. No background uh, in triathlon. And I went out there on, on a whim with a 5 million, uh, millimeter surfing wetsuit, a uh, beach cruiser for, was my bike, and got my ass kicked. And loved every freaking minute of it. That's awesome. And got done, and I saw the three friends, and they all beat me. And I said, hey, look. I said, thank you guys so much for introducing me to this. And that's just the last time you'll ever beat me. Um, but, you know. Was, was he part you. of this deal here? No, Kowals- no okay. Kowalski over there was, was not part of the deal. Uh, but he's been a huge mentor and guiding uh, force in, in my endurance world life. I met him early on. It's a buddy of mine sitting to my left. But basically, uh I met him early on, and he taught me, uh, him along with, you know, the few other people. And what's so cool about the endurance community is everyone's really helpful. And he was running a triathlon store at the time, and we just became training buddies, and one thing led to the next, and we're doing races together and doing, you know, training camps together. And I just think, you know, so much of this is obviously an individual sport, but it's not through, you know, that. That's not what brings me back. Right. to it what brings me back is is the connections that i've been able to make the relationships and the idea of of being alongside somebody and not only you know you pushing your limits but seeing somebody else push theirs and yeah. when that's able to happen then you're able to draw inspiration from it so uh long story even longer it ended up within the next like seven 11 months later i did my first iron man nice um Which within, did you do? i did iron man arizona and then within like a seven-year period, I did 11 Ironmans and got into um, ultra running and ended up doing the Western States in 2016. And oh, so you're right at home here. Oh, right at home. <laughs> right at home. Just walked by the, the rock earlier today uh, where the, the Western States start line rock. And I think that's – isn't that – I mean, I think you probably got more press from that than, than a lot of the others. It seems like that's when I first saw – oh, wait, there's a baseball guy. <laughs> doing yeah. some freaking, what, so well, what we, year was that anyway? It was, 20, it was 2016 okay. is when I did the race. Uh, we had a documentary come out later that year called Diamond of the Rough. And it was really kind of all about what we're talking about, like right. transition. It was going from the baseball diamond um, to ultra. So for perspective, really quick. So you talk about what a lot of your peers did when they retired. You know, how, how, did, how did other athletes kind of fill the gap that you're talking about? I, I, there's, Scott, there's not a, a week, I feel like, that goes by where I don't have a former professional baseball player reach out to me in some capacity. Yeah looking for guidance yeah. for what's next yeah. and the one the one thing I could say um, is that no matter who you are like we're gonna go through this transitional time I talked about mine but the thing is is that you gotta go yeah. right you can't you can't sit there and dwell on it it's like I knew there was this major competitive void that yeah. was gone out of my life yeah. and how do I feel it but so often, all of these guys, they're unable to step outside of their comfort zone yeah. because they're not going to be great at it. Right. They're not even going to be good at it. So you have to start from the bottom barrel, yeah. right, and be willing to get passed by 16-year-old girls on your bike. Yeah, I was going to ask, so when you, when you said you just struggled on that. Struggle. So when you said, it was an athletic thing, you're a freaking world-class athlete, so it can't be the, the, the skill, was it the cardio, was it, well, I mean, what was, was everything? Well, was number one, I didn't know how to swim. Oh, yeah, that, 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 <laughs> swimming is somewhat important in triathlons. I, I couldn't swim freestyle. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was comfortable in the water, relatively. Yeah. But it was more. Just but that's kind of different, though. Like when you grow up comfortable in the water, and then you go try to do an Ironman, you feel like you're dying. Dying, <laughs> dying. I thought. And then I you had the adrenaline surge, and then you have to try to catch your breath under underwater, and you don't have the capacity. I can't tell you how many panic attacks. Because the other thing is, is that when I go into something, like I'm all in, right? And so, like I told my friends that day, I'm all in. So I signed up for Ironman Arizona, which was 11 months later. And within those 11 months, I raced 11 times. I was devoted. I'm, I'm racing once a month. Yeah. So by the time I did my first Ironman, I had raced, yeah, that's good. you know, 11, 12 times. And so I got used to it a little bit, but still, like, I could, I don't know, 
at least three or four different full-blown panic attacks yeah. in the water, it, yeah, which is not thing. the place you want to have them. No. Um, so, you know, going through that, that uncomfortable sort of thing, is <coughs> that's not what guys want to do. Yeah. When they quote unquote retire from professional baseball, um, but at the same time, you know I think there's a lot of guys, the guys that I know that have been successful. It's not about doing an Ironman. It's not about running a hundred mile race. It's not about doing any of the crazy sort of endurance events that that I've gotten into. Um, via this 24 hour world record golf challenge we just did, or a triathlon across the country last summer, but. It, it is about continuing to move. It is about putting one foot in front of the other. It is about realizing that, hey, look, just because, you know, I'm not doing, you know, 1560s today at, you know, X percent strides and come up with all the crap we used to do and crazy jumps and, you know, all the other training, you know, that would facilitate somebody getting ready for a baseball season. You need to train. You need to move in, in all of that people thought the only reason why they were doing it was for baseball. One of the things I realized when I was really young was that this wasn't about baseball. This wasn't about the sport. This, like, this was about what this did for my mind. And so recognizing that early on as a kid that grew up full-blown ADHD, then I knew that's, that's the path that I was going to take. And that's the path that, you know, now we've pretty much continued to champion um, yeah. you know, through a, a foundation that my wife and I started called Let Them Play and all about awesome. getting kids outside and youth activity and everything else. But for, for former professional baseball players, back to your original question, I know yeah, yeah. going on here, yeah, it's, it's natural for them just to be lost. Right. And, it, you know, I was for a short period of time, very short period of time, and then it was moving. Yeah. And... Was it one of those things where you just kind of, did you just kind of get excited? Like, I'm, I kind of suck at this thing. Now I have something to put my energy towards. Was that was that part? Because, I mean, baseball is a very obsessive, redundant sport. You have to put crazy reps in to even be decent. I mean, hitting a baseball is still arguably the hardest skill in any, in my opinion, in any sport. Right. So, you're never going to be perfect at it. And you have very like it's not coming out of a pitching machine. You have variables. You know. Um, so the the idea of failure isn't really that scary from an athletic standpoint for most baseball guys that I know. So going out there and knowing that you're getting your ass kicked the first time, were you kind of excited, okay, these are three disciplines that I can put some effort into, or was it just you just wanted to be able to beat your buddies who, who uh, coached you into it? Yeah, it just it had obviously had nothing to do with that. I really didn't care. It, it had more to do, it had everything to do um, with that feeling of being a rookie. It had everything to do with having my back up against the wall. It had everything to do with me feeling so freaking uncomfortable. And there was each and every single, for whatever reason, each and every single year, I would get butterflies yeah. on opening day, right? Yeah. And it, said, it didn't matter. I mean, from Little Eve on, it's butterflies, butterflies, butterflies. I want to go I back. Never, I want to go to that again. Never, I never felt that. I never felt that until... I got to a start line of triathlon. That's cool. And I was just like, that's it? Yeah. That's the feeling that we're looking for. Yeah. It's the fear, it's the fear of the unknown. It's the idea that, guess what? You know, here's this whole season in front of you. Yeah. Here, here's this whole race in front of you. And we have no idea what's going to happen. We've prepared as well as we could. But there is a good chance you are going to go out there and fail today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just co- just coaching so many athletes in my in my career and and, uh, and when you work with recreational athletes older older people who who are paying you for the service and they have a problem with that feeling of being nervous before competition I'm like are you kidding me people chase this feeling their whole life and they don't know what it is and, and once you recognize that you're there like you don't you don't have to keep searching you know it's kind of cool okay so I never got to play professional baseball and. Uh, you know, I still know what freaking grass smells like when you go out on the field and what the leather smells. You know, like there's baseball has a lot to do with the smell. You know, it's sure. it's just a thing. And uh, I've played on big fields and, and stuff like that, but I've never played in front of huge crowds and like that. And so, opening just for me, this is selfish. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, want, I love it. I want you to, to describe whether it's opening day or a big game, um, coming out of the dugout and realizing like the tunnels typically dark in those dugouts when you when you're coming through the locker room. And then you take a couple steps up, you know, you hear your spikes on the on the cement. You, that sound is, like, probably engraved in your brain for the rest of your life. And then you finally get the spikes on the dirt. 
and then everything just opens up because you realize, holy crap, there's we're in this huge freaking gladiator coliseum that we've been able, we're able to build now, you know? Yeah. Um, and the, I mean, everything's just manicured perfectly. What's it feel like, man? <laughs> so, you just described my first day in the big leagues. Yeah. So, uh, imagine this. I'm in Sacramento. I get called up. Uh, don't sleep. Yeah. At, at all. Um, and end up going to the airport at you know, like a 6 a.m. flight out of Sacramento into Denver. Uh, get into Denver. Actually, randomly, run into my, my mom and my sister there. Oh, no uh, way. On their way to Cleveland, too. Oh, that's but, I knew they were coming, but uh, whatever. So, uh, flight Denver to Cleveland. And so, now here I am in Cleveland. And it's August 22nd, 2000. And I'm trying to get to the stadium. So, I, I go to the stadium and get up front. And the security guard there won't let me in. Oh, I don't have a big league ID. Yeah. But I, how am I supposed to have a big league ID? I'm not in the big league. I was in the minor leagues. But I didn't have my minor league card. And so because I didn't have my minor league card, I had my driver's license, I believe, which was all I had. And then um, a guy, I, I mean, I'm talking 30 minutes. And, and I arrived late, too. Yeah. So I'm 30 minutes before game time. And finally a fan is he takes the car. Then now the security guard was trying to call the Ace Clubhouse. Yeah. He couldn't get a hold of anybody in the Ace Clubhouse. So then the security guard takes a... Uh, this guy next to me, the fan, he had one of my minor league baseball cards. No way. And so he showed it the security <laughs> guard, and he's like, dude... Like, trading, legit, like a trading a card. A trading card. Like the card like, that you get in the back of bubble Oh my bubbles. gosh. So he had a minor league trading card of mine. And so finally the security guard... Walked me down to the front, walked me into the clubhouse yeah. until finally one of the guys on the A's, Mickey Morbido, who's a traveling secretary, was like, Oh, hey, I was wondering when you were going to arrive. Oh and, you know, back then it was, you know, I had tried them too, but what happens is on a cell phone, this was underneath um, the tunnel, the coverage wasn't going to work. Right. So the more we tried to call him, like, I wasn't getting anything, so I couldn't. Anyway, <laughs> we end up, end up, I'm, I'm in the lineup that day. Yeah, and I go and I meet the manager, Art Howe, and I'm meeting the team, my teammates for the first time. I mean, just Eric Chavez, Jason Giambi, Miguel Tejada. It's like, damn, man. I looked up to all these guys, right? And so I had like 10 minutes before the game, suited up as quickly as I can, and I walked out. Like you said, that tunnel. That Walking out of the tunnel, walked up to the top step. And I remember standing there and turning around and looking up at Jacobs Field, and at this point, they had had like 400 and something consecutive sellouts. Oh my and just to see the people fill up this gladiator sort of stadium, yeah. which I'd never played in a stadium like that, like not even close, yeah. nothing. Uh, the closest thing would have been the College World Series, but even that doesn't have the, the three decks and yeah. everything else. In that sense of... Holy shit. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. I'm here. And I didn't know what to do because the heart starts beating fast. And I'm like, you know what? All right, fuck it, let's go. And I went full send sprint out to center field as fast as I could. I'm like, I just got to get this energy out. Yeah. Boom, turn around, full send sprint. I'm like, oh, that's not enough. Let's go again. Let's go sprint. All the way back to center field. All the way back. And... Next thing you know, game started, got in the box, I was hitting seventh against Chuck Finley. Awesome. Stood in there, and it was like, let's do this. Yeah. And there wasn't a butterfly there. There was no nerves, nothing. Yeah. It was, it's weird. And the best way I could describe it is like, you know when you're prepared for a race, yeah. and you stand on that start line. Yeah. There's no fear. Yeah, There's no insight. Sorry, I've been taking care of. You're comfortable. You're prepared. You prepared for this moment. It's like that test, right? You used to go in and you'd be all worried about the test. Yeah. You're only worried about the test because you didn't study. Yeah. But when you study for the test, you go in there and you're comfortable and you're confident. Yeah. And so I've taken what I learned there through my Major League Baseball experience into the endurance world yeah. where I know that if I'm going to step on the start line tomorrow at the Spartan Ultra Base, I prepared as well as I could. Yeah. Now, am I as prepared as maybe I should be? Eh, I don't know. But in the short period of time that I could get ready for this, um, there's a lot of unknowns. Right. But here Are you doing is. that tomorrow? 
I'm, I'm going out tomorrow. Nice. What time are you starting? Out. We are going out tomorrow. We're out. Uh, it's like 6.15 in the morning, man. Like, early. Nice. So, it'll be... Uh, it's going to be an interesting day. <laughs> the weather should be nice, <laughs> but... You don't, you don't do this shit because it's easy. No. You know that. I, I, I've said this like five times today, but uh, nobody ever talks about the run they did when it was 70 degrees out and sunny. No. That's the most boring thing I would ever no. want to hear from you. No. <laughs> right? Yeah, That's th- cool. Th- this, this should provide some pretty epic memories. That's cool, man. So have you done Spartan before? Never. No? Never. Have you done one? Oh, this is great. I, re- I would love to watch you guys at about the second lap. Yeah. Two feet in. Yeah. It's fun. Uh, it's the way the way I think we both look at it is the the endurance should not be an issue. That's the key. I mean, if you can if you can run, you'll always be in the top ten percent. Always. Yeah. The obstacles we have no idea. <laughs> well, well, we got it might be wet tomorrow. The grippy stuff, you should be fine. You guys, you guys move weight around still a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. So not you, much. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's, you know, I, I think the biggest issue with athletes that I've worked with and even myself running some of these is uh, the load on the endurance. So carrying a big-ass freaking sandbag after you've already put 12 miles on, yeah. like cat, cramping issues yeah. from that. I told him that, and so we have a mustard cramp prevention regimen. That that should help a lot. Should it, It's always helped in all the other crazy stuff that we've done. So yeah. we'll have, we'll have Stay some on top, on st- Preventative on that stuff for sure. The grippy stuff, like most athletes that go out and do this, don't really have that, that big a problem with the grippy stuff unless you just lose concentration. Yeah. Um, but just take your... I'm just giving you tips. Take your time. I will, I will, sorry, this. Take, take your time on the uh, on all of the overhead hanging grippy stuff, because what happens is people think that they have to get through it quick, and you none of it's so long that you're going to burn out. Yeah. But if you rush, you're going to fall off. So I think that's a big a good tip. And then the freaking spear. Heaven forbid, an ex professional baseball guy can't throw. So. <laughs> so you just toss you toss a spear. Yeah. Have you not done that? No. Uh, you need to grab it about. Mm, Five inches beyond midline. Okay. Keep your arm up, and you throw it more like a football than a baseball. Okay. So you come through instead of across. If you remember that, you'll be good. And don't puss out on it, because the first two Spartans I did, I was just trying to be cute with it, because it's hay bales. Yeah. And hit it dead center, but the thing just went bloop, and just fell down. So put a little, we'll put a little ass into it. Ah. <laughs> that alone, like, it would be better to throw it harder and, and just have it come offline than to throw it soft online and have it come out right there keep that just like a javelin kind of right. until the last second then boom but that's my best best advice on that because you just don't want to do you don't want to do burpees they waste two or three minutes yeah at, at least at two or three burpees at fatigue and, and wait till you do, it, do them at 9,000 feet up there do you guys live at sea level I'd live here a good portion of the year do you? okay so that's I, good. this is this is home the altitude shouldn't be that big of an issue um, but at the same time it's still like all of us yeah. if you're doing it at 9,000 feet compared even to 6,000 feet it's different are you going to podcast about this after you, after you do it? hell yeah yeah this, that's cool no, I think you, how many times do you get a chance to do something completely new? And you don't yeah. and that's why him and I were talking about it the other day Kowalski and it's like we were kind of checking out all the obstacles like this is this is awesome it's fun like this is this is so new. There's so many unknowns yeah. that we're about to face head on tomorrow. It's so fun. Well, and the thing is, too, like, you can't go freaking build a Spartan race in your backyard. No. Like, it's worth to pay it, pay for it. What, whatever you got to do just to get out there and go, go experience it. Because I can go run 50 miles on the trails any day. You know? Question for you. The uh, nutrition hydration. Yeah. Um, how often do they have stations? Nutri- they don't typically have nutrition out there. The Spartan races I've done, they only have water. Yeah, that's good to know. Now, you, you might want to check with Josue and some of these guys, but every Spartan that I've done, it, it's on you. So you carry your own nutrition? Oh, yeah. I carry all of them. Yep. And it's, it's, Ultra's a whole different beast, though, because I haven't done any really long Spartans yet. Okay. But um, you have to see what some of the rules are for that, because they make you ca- keep your stuff on your person. Like, you're not allowed to keep stuff back a lot of times. They're, pre- they're pretty strict, especially since it's world championships and stuff. But, yeah. Uh, I would make sure because you don't want to get, you don't want to get up there and not have nutrition. Yeah, we're, we were talking about not right now. Our plan was no nutrition, no water. Yeah, we're just gonna wing it and figure we'd stop at the stations to yeah. take in the calories. Unless, and unless they've drink. changed something, I, 
I'm, I'm, they've had uh, nutrition on people's persons, but it's the ultra. The ultra beasts might be. They might have different rules. I don't know. But you can get. You know, you could get in trouble without anything out there for what the 50k. Oh race? yeah, we're done. Yeah. You know I mean? <laughs> and Trump, we, you know, we'd have to do it at the stop like the Starbucks. So the race course comes through the thing on lap one, right? Yeah. If you want a really good story, go out and do the ultra beast without nutrition. Then, oh, you have, then you have a really good story. The, the, best, the best thing would have, if we went out there without nutrition and they didn't have it on the course, we would have. Go, I imagine you could stop if you had to. Yeah, I would go. Here, I right? would go ask for sure, though. Yeah. Like come off the course and just go grab something. Should <laughs> grub out. Interesting. No, yeah, but a lot of unknowns tomorrow, dude. No, it'll be fun. You guys will kill it. I, I like how you're doing the ultra for your first one ever. It's great. Yeah, just jump, <laughs> right, right into the fire. We um, were talking to Joe DeSuna today, and he's like, "You guys are fucking nuts." Yeah. Well, you guys are gonna be sore, but it's freaking fun, man. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I think the hardest part for everybody is it hasn't been cold anywhere yet this year. So everybody's been training in pretty hot weather. Yeah. But it's a lot better to go from hot to cold than cold to hot. Like, if you've been training all winter and then you go out for, you know, if you go out for a marathon and it's 85 degrees, you're gonna crash and burn. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the cold. So fit, about 52 degrees is your ideal training condition, mm-hmm. and so for every temp, every degree that you go above or below, it takes Effects. extra energy. Yeah. So depends how much it stays below that, and then what sort of effect the wind and the and the rain or snow yeah. could, could have on it. The snow. I've done a lot of stuff in snow up here. Believe it or not, like we're gonna want snow. You, the, oh, yeah. the rain. The snow's way better than the rain. Oh yeah. Yeah, because it'll just bounce off. It just, it just little flakes floating. And you know, there's a swim on it, right? We are well aware of the okay. uh, water, <laughs> water feature. Now, obviously, we're not afraid of the swim. I'm no. being triathletes like the swim, but the whole idea of getting in there fully geared up. I heard a good. I get. I heard, I heard a good tip this morning. So somebody was saying, take off as much of your clothing as you can. If you have like a, I, a, I a ba- like a waterproof baggie, they don't let you leave it. You can take it with you, but you can put it into something that's air airtight. Swim with that, and then when you get out, you won't have everything completely saturated, and so you can have some some semblance of dry clothes, assuming it's not pouring out. But that's that's really good advice, just for body temp. And they put a life vest on you? I don't know. I bet they do for insurance. Yeah, I saw I saw them doing that last year. Yeah, putting the life vest on. But I'm I'm thinking we go. Here's the other thing: if it's like a 50-yard swim. We have a full send swim to sprint, oh, right? Because yeah. you keep your you keep your Just keep your heart rate your, up. Your heart rate up the whole oh, yeah. time, then you fire out of there. Yeah. And then one of the things that Joe said, he said, make sure when you get out of the water, don't lollygag around. He said, go. You gotta get that heat up. Just go. That's where most people mess up because they wipe their feet off. They try it, and then by the time your heart rate's been down for two minutes, you're done. You're done. And that, that's the same thing he said. Because you can't catch up. You can't. You can't get the heat back once, especially if you're getting hypothermic. Yeah. Like you're right. Day's over. You're right, dude. <laughs> All right, so I've called, so the uh, let them play. Yeah. Oh yeah, we got plenty of time. Um, wait, how many kids do you have? Three. Three kids. How old are they? Uh, so, uh, eight, nine, and ten. Oh wow. Yeah. Just, Boom, boom, boom. Irish Done. triplets. <laughs> so I have a six and eight-year-old boys. Awesome. Uh, boys or girls? Uh, my boys, eight, and then two girls, uh, nine and ten. All right, what's something in the last week you – have you been around them last week? Yeah. What's something in the last week you've uh, either forced, facilitated, or watched them fail at happily? Because I have a feeling you have very similar ideals. Yeah. So, well, let's just start with my, my son, Colton. We went out to the baseball field the other day, and he loves baseball. And, you know, get, we did some ground balls, did some fly balls, and uh, threw him some soft toss out on the field, just raking, and then I threw, threw him some BP, he was crushing it, and then it was like, you know what? Hey, it's TB cheddar cheese time. He's like, Daddy. I said, let's go. So... TV cheddar cheese is basically, there's two things that I would tell you that got me to the big leagues. Yeah. Number one is the iron mic machine. Oh, pitching machine. Number two is the TV cheddar cheese drill. And I don't know this one. I'm, I'm kind of interested So here. basically, you're throwing a tennis ball. So okay. you're not going to hurt anyone. Right. So you put a helmet on an eight-year-old, just get there, and you go about 40 feet or 45 feet away. And I take the tennis ball, and I chuck it as hard as I can. Oh, that's awesome. Over and over and over and over again. So I'm now coaching a, a team. Ironically, we named it Let Them Play. 
Um, it's a 10U team, and he, Colton's eight. He's going to be playing up with these boys. But I implemented it in practice. Um, well, few, how how far are you doing so. it from? 40, probably about 45 feet, so about, about the same distance. Maybe a, when they – so they swing and miss yeah. is the bottom line. And as I want to give them a little bit better chance of making contact, I'll scoop back a little bit. Now, the funny thing is, is that hitting a baseball is – so instinctual. Right. It's a trained instinct. You don't have the time to process all this information with a ball coming at you, the equivalent of 100 miles per hour. So what this teaches the kids to do, shorten and tighten their swing. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. it's like you have no choice. If you want to take the barrelless bat and put it on the ball, you're going to have to figure it out. Right. And so you can only swing and miss so many times. And eventually you're just like, yeah. and it just, I could take someone who's never played baseball before that eventually, within X amount of pitches, will hit this ball that's coming in at literally the equivalent, yeah. the equivalent of, of nearly 100 miles per hour. So well, how does your kid do? Does he get, does he get so mad? He, or? He, he, just, he, he understands. He gets mad when I hit him. <laughs> Daddy! So I, I I get in there, and I was firing. And, it, and, and again, after a while, it's just he hit one. He hit one. This is probably a couple months ago when we did it. But he hit one at the end. I was doing an Instagram video like as a joke because yes. I knew I was going to strike him out 10 times in a row. And he ended up drilling one and almost took my head off. Nice. And it was just like, man, that's it. Like, Is he using a little kid metal bat? Or? Yeah, a little kid bat. Yeah. Exactly. He's got a wood bat too that he uses. But the bottom line is just like in, in life, it's like if you – in the, the whole concept of the Iron Mike machine – so two quick stories. <clears throat> the first one, the 10 ball cheddar cheese wheel – is which we've now named it, but basically it was just playing against the garage. And right. you want to do it, so I'll move him all the way back to the backstop. So when he swings and misses, the ball's right back in my hand. Yeah. Right? So I don't have to go get 100 tennis balls. Now, when I was a kid, the best pitcher in Little League, his name was Tony Kassman. He was my next-door neighbor. He used to, and he was four years older than me, maybe even five years older than me. Oh, and he used to throw me batting practice. But it wasn't batting practice. It was, he was working on his pitches. But eventually... I started to hit him. Yeah. And so I'm squaring up some balls and squaring up some balls. And we did this all day long. We had freaking buckets and buckets of tennis balls. Um, and then, so that got me to be, when I was nine years old, playing one year T ball, I went to a tryout for Little League and ended up getting drafted in majors. Yeah. And it was like, I had no, you know, back then, it's like, my kid, my kid, by the time he was, you know, by the time he was nine, he's going to have like five seasons under his belt. Like, it's, back then it was totally different, right? Yeah. So that's what I think set me ahead of all the other nine-year-olds at that point because I was the only nine-year-old in the league. Right. And then from there, when I was 13 years old, my dad used to throw me BP all the time. And he never played baseball. He was a 4-3 black belt in Kempo Karate. Oh, cool. But he used to throw me BP all the time. And for my 13th birthday, him and my mom, I show up at breakfast and like, hey, like, um, we, got, we got you a present. I'm like, cool. Like, what is it? She's like, it's actually a friend. We're like, a friend? Like, what are you talking about, a friend? It's like his name's Mike. I'm like, what are you guys talking about? They're like, go walk down, you know, walk down below. It's like below our house. It's like it's, it's, uh, it's waiting for you. So I go down there, and sure enough, it's a blue Iron Mike pitching machine nice. that you could crank up to 90 miles per hour. It's so on 13 years old. They have the little arm one. It's an arm thing. Yeah. I crank this thing up to 90 miles per hour right off the bat. So we miss, we miss, we miss. Same concept with the tennis ball. Pretty soon, start hitting it, start hitting it, start hitting it, and. Two years, fast forward like two years, I used to, before football practice, before school, after football practice, didn't matter. I, I mean, I was hitting 350 days a year. Nice. Every single day. I'd hit, I'd hit early, I'd hit late, it doesn't matter. And I get called up to the varsity at St. Francis High School, and we're facing Dan Serafini and the Sarah Padres, where Tom Brady went to school too, okay. playing against him at Sarah. So Dan Serafini was a consensus first-round draft pick. Didn't some other guys go there? Uh, Lynn Swan yeah. went there. Greg Jeffries went there. Oh my gosh. Barry Bonds went there. Oh my gosh! How about that? Just yeah, about that cranking them out, man. Holy yeah, God. It's, it's nuts. So we, <clears throat> so here I am, and, and Serafini's Serafini's on the mound. No one can touch me. So I'm 94 miles per hour from the left side. I get in there. I'm a sophomore in high school. I barely have hair on my balls, and I hit three bullets off them. Nice. And. Everyone's kind of coming back, like, dude, how'd you do that? How'd you do that? I'm like, 
I've been doing this for the past three years in my backyard. Yeah. I'm the only guy who had seen 90 miles per hour consistently. Yeah. And so it's like, this isn't an accident. Like, I didn't, I didn't, and then that obviously, because all the scouts were in the stands watching Serafini, that was the first time they're like, dude, who's this little shit from St. Francis that, you know, is, is, is raking this guy? And that was the first time that I got noticed from professional scouts and colleges and yada, yada, yada. So it's a, none of this is, a, is an accident. Yeah. And, and, and ultimately, the other thing is, and I tell my own kids this, it's like, and they're all really competitive ski racers, and obviously Colton loves baseball. I'm like, look, this isn't up to me. Yeah. It's just up to you guys. You know, if, if, if Colton says, like, hey, Daddy, I want to play in the bit. Oh, that's great, kid. Yeah. <laughs> that's not up to me, though. This yeah. is up to you. So and what, part of that is you've got to be obsessed. What's your, uh, yeah, what's your philosophy as a parent? So, so if they want to do it and they come to you and it's from their energy, you go help them out. I'll give, I'll give them every opportunity. It yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. Like, I, I'll, yeah. I'll sacrifice whatever I have to sacrifice to give them. My dad told me there's two things in my life that I can give you. Education experience. Yeah. That two things I can give you, no one will ever take away. Yeah. Those, those are the two most important things. And so I will sacrifice whatever it is in my life to give my kids those two same things. But there's only so much you can do yeah. because it comes to a point where it's like if they're going to be good or great at anything, they have to put in the work. Yeah, they, so have, they have to love it. And if they don't love it, yeah. It's on to yeah. something else. I mean, there's a, yeah, there's a reason Michael Jordan's kids weren't Michael Jordan. And, you know, like any, any big guy, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's got to come intrinsically. But you can give them, if they, sh- if they show that inclination, then you give them every opportunity. And you support them. And you let them know it's okay. Yeah, like, it's, I, people think it's, a, some people will tell you it's a bad thing to be obsessed. Right. I say, I don't know. I mean, you know, talk to Michael Jordan. Is, is, it, is it a bad thing? Talk to Tom Brady. Yeah. Is, is, that, is it a bad thing? I... I don't think it's a bad thing. No. I've made a career out of it. Now, at some point, mm-hmm. I also was able to step back and then take a little bit of a different perspective. Yeah. I think then, you know, maybe a Michael Jordan or a Tom Brady hat. I, baseball wasn't everything to me. It yeah. never was. That's cool. And so it was like I loved it. I enjoyed it. But I think one of the reasons why I was able to transition out nicely is because I always looked forward to what was next. I always looked forward to attacking a new adventure. I always looked forward to the next part of my life, uh, you know, be it in, in the media or now obviously getting into ultra endurance sports. Yeah. Like, I like so new fun. shit. That's how you do life, bro. I, Why not? If you, live, if you live 10 years ago, you're going to be miserable, probably. Um, oh, when we were at lunch, I, I heard Michael over here before I even knew who he was talking to some of my buddies about the uh, the golf record. Yeah. I don't know anything about this. What, so what was it? So, Long story short, a couple years ago, I got invited to play uh, in a golf tournament and because I was an ultra runner, had some hand-eye coordination, uh, play a little bit of golf. Uh, there was a, speed, a professional speed golfer invited me to come out and be a part of this 12-hour uh, golf event that they held in Napa and raised a bunch of money for, uh, for, for charity. And it was it's like, yeah, sure, why not? So I went out there. There's like seven, eight dudes. And basically... In the 12 hours of playing golf, um, I set a new unofficial world record of it was 245 holes played. Now, uh, the the guy who held the record, um, Carl Meltzer, yeah, the, like speed guy, yeah, the speed guy, yeah, right. So he had he set it at the same course, yeah. Uh, I think he played 230 something. Uh, like two or three years before I did. Um, and then there was another guy in New Zealand who actually beat that number. I think he played... Uh, the same same Melter was about 235. The other guy maybe got like 238. And I, I thought I had no chance at this because I can't run. I can't run a car. How many... So about 20 holes an hour or so? Yeah. So that was 20 holes an hour. And I started... In training for this, I kind of figured out like what the numbers were and what I would have to do to play that many. I still didn't think it was possible. But... I did it. So, anyway, fast forward to this crazy triathlon that we did across the country last summer, and that raised a ton of money for the foundation that we started, all about getting kids outside and letting them play, and 97% of schools have now dropped physical education on a daily basis. Uh, 60% of kids do zero after school youth activity programs. They're, they're slashing PE and recess everywhere. And so we went around and we handed out these grants as we went across the country um, and delivered these grants to all these different um, schools and, and organizations 
and I used my baseball connections to do so. So we stopped in different minor and major league parks and it went really well. And so we're like, what's next for a big event? And so we decided because the we figured out that the 24-hour yeah. uh, Guinness Book of World Records, 24-hour um, speed golf record was 402 holes and hadn't been touched in 47 years. What? So that became fascinating for us. So we decided that we're like, man, let's do this. And we basically surrounded it around the foundation and we yeah. called it the Let Them Play 24-Hour Speed Golf Challenge. Um, and trained, Kowalski and I trained um, a ton for it. Yeah. Uh, because when you put yourself out there that I'm going after a world record, and yeah. not only that, you bring in Guinness, which is a shit ton of money. Um, and then we involved all the local uh, activity teams or local sports teams, like Half Moon Bay football team came out, Pasadena softball team, and we made the teams run around with us for like a five mile round is basically what it is four and a half five miles around and then we'd hand them a check for a thousand bucks oh that's cool it was, it was super cool that's really cool so that was the idea of chasing it and ended up playing um half and bay ocean course 420 holes so broke the broke the record by 18 holes and it was it was awesome and it's like I'm telling you, this goes back to like what we were talking about earlier. It's like whether this is endurance sports, is a solo sport, as opposed to team sport. That day was 100% team. That day was 100%. Like I could not have done it without the support of my wife, the kids, uh, running the rounds. I did 10 rounds with different teams. 10 rounds. I had him by my side for 80, like 85 miles. By my side. What were the stats on that? So like how many, how many miles did that end up being? 106. Oh my God! So 106 miles on the golf. Uh, what what, else, what hurt that you didn't think? That so you, they, you've never, you know what I mean? Like yeah, I didn't think, I didn't think, I didn't, I didn't think much about the arms. Yeah. In swinging a golf club, I just I was training for the endurance part, right? Right. And so I will say that 100%. I think that my style of play. Yeah. So I would play polo. I'd tee off, yeah. and then after that, I'd play polo. So yeah. I didn't want to have to run any extra distance. So that would keep the ball in line Straight, yeah. and, and let me control the ball. And so that was kind of the big thing. But I also, obviously, if I hit the ball in the fescue, like, I had to chop it out of there. So I completely shredded my forearm. <laughs> my left forearm was jacked. But I didn't notice it when I was out there at all. Yeah. It was just the next day. I, I couldn't move, barely move this arm for a month. Um, yeah, this, this, the numbers on it were crazy because I, we had to have a golf professional with us at all times, monitoring every single stroke, taking every single stroke count. So you can imagine, like, the stroke counts. Could somebody else take the flag out, or did you keep the flags out? No, so the flags now could stay in. They could? Part of the PGA rules. The another, the another rule that benefited me is that if you lose a ball now, you don't have to go back and hit another one. Okay. You can drop and take two strokes. Okay. So, um, between the polo style, uh, the new golf rules, the support of the teams, the support of the foundation, which basically is my wife and uh, her friends and Kowalski's wife, Alyssa, and uh, everyone, and obviously having him by my side the whole time, just mentally, just it kept me kept me dialed. And it's like we didn't we didn't stop, we didn't slow down much. Like you know, we went. Was it mentally tougher? Or what, what do you think? Because just, just tracking a ball and hitting it that many times has got to be... Physic, it's funny because physically, it was the toughest thing I've ever done. Was it, yeah? Mentally, for a one-day event, it was a Western stance. Was it? That's tough. That's tough, yeah. It, but, but physically, the, go, the golf thing was... It's just because it's not only are you running... You're slowing down. You're plus, stopping and going 100,000 times. Stop, go, stop. Go, That's brutal. Stop, go, stop, go. And then hit. And, but mentally, if you think about it, it's like sport race. I can't guarantee you because I haven't done this, but knowing that we have obstacles and stuff, yeah. like th- that's a mental break for me. Oh, yeah, it is. You know what's really hard? That's the truth, for sure. When I, when I go out and run a marathon and I start it freaking, you know, running six-minute miles, and I'm like, i got to hold on for dear life. Yeah. Right? That's, like, that's the worst. Yeah. That sucks. That, that's, a, that's a mental run. I mean, that, I think... Uh, I think a lot of people are attracted to ultras for the the uphill stuff is brutal in a lot of these races, but it is a break. It's a psychological break. So, I mean, you might be working twice as hard, but so, yeah, at least I can think and look, look around a little bit, you know? Uh, okay, so a, few, a couple more questions. For sure. people who are uh, getting into 
endurance stuff because everybody's coming from something. You came from baseball and you had to transition. A lot of people are just coming from different life circumstances and they they want desperately to find the thing that's going to give them some passion and give them some energy and motivation to train for something and to take care of their bodies. Um, do you have any advice for people who are in that spot just to like get into it? Okay, first and foremost, I'll tell you, and I just touched on it a little bit, <laughs> the ultra world is so much better and in a lot of ways easier than going out and running a half marathon, than right. going out and running a marathon. Like, I, I can't tell you, it's really hard to explain, but it's also a lot more spiritual because when you're out there in the mountains, when you're out there on the trails, when you're out there uh, pushing your limits and going beyond boundaries that you ever thought were possible you're touching a, a, a different part of your soul that you haven't had a lot of experience going there before a lot of people have said to me there's like hey <clears throat> not a lot the one specific his name's kelly james he's a musician he's one of my best friends and when i was doing all of this and you know obviously continue to do all of it he says, what are you running from? And I had to think about it for a little bit. And I said, you know what? I said, it's not what I'm running from. I said, it's what I'm running to. And I'm not running from my problems. I'm facing them head on. Because when you get out there and, and you basically strip yourself down, you're exposed, yeah. and you're, you're forced to face each and every one of your problems head on. Yeah, yeah okay, so um, I, I know, I think I read that you, you lost your dad. Yeah. Uh, so I lost my dad a couple years ago. Probably the single hardest thing for me that I've ever dealt with. Like, 100%. He's my coach and best friend, and, you know, I lived, I lived on the West Coast, and he lived back east. He's coaching, and you get in this habit of calling. I call my mom every day just because I know she's alone and, like, I'm driving across town, you know, so I'm just calling. It's easy. Got FaceTime, she can see the kids, blah, blah, blah. Um, but even for like six months after my dad died, I'm picking up the phone and calling him because it's a habit, right? And then, uh, you know, the, the running thing, I, he passed away on October 7th, uh, three, over three years. And his birthday was in September. And he was 62 years old when he died. And uh, so I trained for my first 100K, and I wanted to do it on his birthday the next year. So it would completely distract me and just give me something to look forward to, you know? Yeah. So on his, uh, on his 63rd birthday, uh, me and my buddy, uh, back in West Virginia, where he retired, went to the highest point in West Virginia, ran a bunch of trails that he loved, and finished under, uh, under the stars in, like, his favorite place in, in the state, right? So we finished there, and it was a team thing. My buddy's having a really bad day out there. But I just stuck with him, and uh, my crew was my family, my uncles, aunts, all the people that love my dad. And we just finished, and uh, it, was, it was magical, man. It was just a really cool thing. But it took me – I talk about grieving a lot on the, on the podcast because I think it's, it's one of the things that people just – the more angles they can have, the better it's going to be for them. And uh, it took me, like, two years to be able to go really push because I think when you are – when you're pushing yourself completely physically, it's, it's hard to hold yourself together mentally and vice versa. It, it took me two years to feel like his loss was empowering me instead of, like, holding me back. So, so grieving takes a long, long, long time for people. Um, do you have anything to say to that, like, on how you're your dead? Yeah, I mean, it sounds really similar. Yeah. I mean, he was mid-60s. Like, you know, mine hit unexpectedly, so it wasn't anything that I was prepared for. Yeah. Um, I think you get used to looking at your dad or even how I still look at my mom as, like, superwoman. Like, this... Yeah. You know, he was he was in super good shape. He was a four three black belt in Kempo Karate. He was super active, and it just it hit, man. I mean, it was a it was a minor heart surgery that uh, the aftercare went wrong, oh, yeah. and so it Happens. was it was crazy. It's crazy. And um, you know, I think we all go through different stages. I think the the first one is shock. I think the second one is anger. And then the third one is what's real, and that's, like, the grieving, and that's the fact that you miss them and it hurts and everything else. Um, and it takes time, but that when my dad died, 
I had just gotten into training for my first Ironman. Yeah. And he was the only one, the only one, that is like, right on, E. Yeah. Awesome. That's cool. And he's like, I want to go on some rides with you. I'll, I'll do some rides with you. Like, let's do this. Yeah. And I'm like, let's go. Yeah. And everyone else thought it was nuts because they look at it. It's like, here's this professional baseball player. All he's done his entire life is train, train, train. And now you get done and you're supposed to be retired. And all you want to do is go train. Like, why are you doing this? Yeah. What are you doing it for? Like, you know, this isn't easy for you. This isn't a natural transition. And he was he was the only one that supported me. And it wasn't that the other ones were discouraging it. Yeah. They were just like, you know, my wife's like, you're crazy. My mom's like, you're crazy. My sister's <laughs> like, you're crazy. And um, so, you know what really helped? Like those long rides. Yeah. Six hours on a bike. That's great. Three-hour runs. Nobody there but him and I. And, yeah. and, and I swear to you, like, you know, his spirit is so alive yeah. and it's, whether it's living through me or, you know, my son Colton, who happened to be born, uh, geez, it was like just a few months after he passed. Yeah. That's the hardest part. Yeah. That's, it's a hardest part because, because man, he doesn't get to watch him grow up yeah. and that's, that, not not even our relationship. Our relationship was awesome. Yeah. But the fact that he, he's missing his grandkids. Yeah. But part of me also feels like he's not missing them all because you know the the, the spirit that that Colton lives with, my my girl that my girls live with, the spirit that I think I live with. Like that's all we could ever hope for in life right. is to is to spread that that love, that optimism that continues to live on and know that you made an impact. And so that's, I think, with all of this stuff that I try to do yeah. now. Yeah, um, matters. You know, the Daily Hustle podcast that I do and, uh, you know. You just launched that. Yeah. yeah we, we, You're doing good, man. I like it. It's 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 different. It's, it's yeah. short. It's it's three to three to like seven minutes a day, depending yeah. on what it is. But, you know, I love writing. And, and so I started getting into this thing where it's, you know, I would – I wrote a book called The Effort List, yeah. Life Lessons from a Human Crash Test Dummy, which is my nickname when I play baseball. <laughs> and, you know, really it's just a lot of, it's a compilation of a ton of stories. I started writing it right when my dad passed away yeah. because it was an experience that I wanted to share. It was a, a grieving experience that I thought would help some people. Um, and then when I got done with it, I'm sitting there like seven years of writing this thing. Um, I figured out, I said, well, why am I going to tell you to read my book? Like, I, yeah. I'm not interested, like, you to hear my story this isn't I didn't want to write an autobiography right yeah. I, but I wanted to draw the lessons out I wanted to provide whoever's going to read this thing I want to give them value right and so really proud of the way it it turned out and basically the daily hustle stuff yeah. is it's a it's a blog that I send out every morning um you know, if, if you go to ericburns.com and sign up, try it for five days. Yeah. And if you don't like it, just hit unsubscribe. Yeah. But B-Y-R-N-E-S. B-Y-R-N-E-S. <laughs> uh, and, and, but I tell people all the time, like, look, part of it's an acquired taste. Um, but at the same time, each and every single fucking day, I promise you, you're yeah. going to get messages. Yeah. You're going to get really good messages. And it's not only through my experience in life, but they're through other people's experiences. Yeah. And when we can learn from other people's experiences, it's even better than having to go through the failure yourself. Oh, hell yeah. So... That's pretty much what it is. But a lot of that, that was my dad. That's who my dad was. Yeah. He was like, he was, he lived his life like that. And I learned all this stuff, yeah. you know, through him and through, through martial arts, through this Far Eastern approach to sports psychology. And it's, it's crazy the impact that he's had that still lives now. Yeah. Oh, man. It's pretty awesome. Dude, thanks, man. I appreciate you, man. That was cool. That was so cool. Start talking about dads. It's fun. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> it's tough, but it's fun.